Welcome to the East Career Cast of the East Career Development Committee. I am Stefan Eichel, your host today, and we are grateful to hear about the ins and outs of contract negotiations from Dr. Allison Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a professor of surgery at West Virginia University School of Medicine in Morgantown, West Virginia. She is vice chair of the Department of Surgery, chief of the Division of Trauma, Emergency Surgery, and Surgical Critical Care, and the Trauma Medical Director of the John Michael Moore Trauma Center, among many other additional roles. Dr. Wilson earned her medical degree from Baylor College of Medicine, where she also completed her residency training in general surgery and fellowship in surgical critical care. Dr. Wilson, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for letting me talk. I think this is a really important uh, topic, and it's a pleasure for me to be able to share a little bit of what I've learned uh, through both hard ways and easy ways and hopefully help save people some uh, some time in doing some research on this. So next slide. So as I get started, first thing I'd like to say, I, I do not have any financial disclosures at all. Um, I certainly have been involved in leadership positions where I've had the opportunity to work with people on both uh, our end as employers as well as as an employee and was also involved in our uh, structuring of our university compensation plan, um, but do not have any other disclosures. So one of the things I think is the most important before you actually start uh, doing any type of negotiation is really to sit down and take a, an inventory of yourself, uh, because that's really going to highlight what it is that you want to uh, have as a must versus some things that you want to have as a want, um, versus some things that you can compromise on. And I think sometimes we uh, have expectations or thoughts of what it is that is the ideal job, but really the ideal job is what fits best for you. So before you even get started in any type of negotiation, take time to sit down and think about what it is that you really want. Do you want to have your clinical time and then have protected off time? Um, are you really looking for a guaranteed type of salary? Many people say they want to be in academic situations and academic settings, but sometimes that's really because that's just what they're most comfortable with and have been exposed to, when in reality they may be a better fit for you know, positions that really involve more direct patient care and don't have the pressures for scholarly activity uh, or research. Some people you know, are looking for opportunities where they're heavier on the critical care or elective surgery side versus the trauma side, and these things will all be important. And then certainly if you have a desire to have research involved, then this will be important to ensure that it's in your contract, but at the same time when you're doing this, if you really don't, then uh, that may be something that you would be willing to compromise. The next step is think about where do you really want to be? Um, and again, not only is this places in the country, but uh, also do you really want to be in a big urban setting that may have a lot of short pre-hospital ETAs but fast uh, penetrating trauma? Or do you really enjoy more of the critical care and, and something that may be, uh, have a little more predictability in the schedule uh, may be important to you? So again, being honest, and this is particularly important for those who have families and children um, and really taking into consideration the environment that they're going to be in. Next thing is think about where you are in your career. <clears throat> so are you really are you coming right out of fellowship? And if so, 
you know, what kind of position are you looking for versus are you mid-career or perhaps uh, separating or retiring from the military and you're ready for a leadership position. Um, this will give you different advantages and will also help to you with some negotiation opportunities. And then finally, what do you bring to the table? And be genuine about this. You know, we say, you know, oh, I, I accomplished multiple things or I have done research, but really are you bringing to the table that you have a track record of grants um, or have you published just a couple of case studies? That really impacts the strength of the negotiating table. Next slide. So the next steps are really sitting down and looking at what are your strengths and what do they need and what's their track record. So for example, if you're looking at a position and they need someone to take a leadership position and you have a history of strong leadership skills, that puts you in a more powerful negotiation seat than if you're fresh out of fellowship and they need a junior faculty that's going to be a, a worker bee. Not that that's anything bad. I mean, worker bees are, are very, very important. That's how you get your clinical acumen up to stuff and, and you learn to become an attending. Uh, but you just want to be sure that you're matching what you have to offer with what it is that they need at that time. Additionally, what is their track record? So do they have a history of a lot of turnover? Are the junior faculty leaving every two years? If so, that may, you know, may be something that you want to think about before you enter into negotiations or sign an offer letter with this. Is there going to be a change in leadership? And what's the history? If you really want to do academics, is this truly an academic center? Um, or if you really just want to do direct patient care, is this a heavily research uh, division? Because in the end, that may cause uh, issues with you and your boss as, uh, as time goes on. Next slide. So now you've got the job offer, and now it's important that you sit down and you enter in the negotiations appropriately. And certainly you want it to be fair, and you want things to be a reasonable guarantee or assurance. You want to be sure that what you're getting is, is market, and how do you, can you compare that to other areas. But also be cognizant of the fact that there's not only national market, but there's also regional market. At the same time, you don't want to be viewed as needy or arrogant or pushy or petty. For example, I wouldn't recommend worrying about what kind of desk or what kind of computer you're going to have um, unless it's something where that's really going to impact how you're going to be able to effectively do your job. What you really don't want to do is, is raise any red flags that you're going to be very petty in particular about every single thing. At the same time, you want to be sure that the important things are clarified and written down and are in some type of uh, contractual arrangement. Next slide. So this can be very confusing to many people. Offer letters are something that are very very common in academics. It oftentimes will detail what division you belong in, the department, what your rank is, and it will usually dictate your salary and your RVU targets. It might have other details such as bonus. It may have other things such as medical directorships, but oftentimes these are very, very vague. Um, it just tends to be a delineation of the initial, this is the salary and this is the title of the job. However, it's important to understand that if both parties sign this, that this is just as legally binding and is considered in a court of law to be a contract. So if the offer letter is something that is relatively vague, you may want to ask and see what the contract, employment contract, looks like 
before you sign the offer letter to ensure that uh, all of your concerns are addressed in one of the two documents. Many times if there is an offer letter, there will be an employment contract that goes along with this, but that would be separate that details the actual conditions of employment. Next slide. So contracts. Contracts, too, can vary in the amount of detail that they have. Again, they are legally binding, and therefore if either party breaks or does not hold up to their end of the contract, um, the other can be sued for damages. Now, if there is a breach of contract and either party is not fulfilling what they stated within the contract and or the offer letter, then you can terminate the contract for breach, and then you can sue for lost uh, wages or, or lost potential income. Next slide. So if you've signed an offer letter or you've signed a contract and then you decide that you don't want to fulfill this job, think about these things or know what it is that can be done or that they are more likely to do. And this too will vary depending on um, the the hospital, their situation, the academic center, the likelihood of being able to replace you. If you break your contract before it starts, sometimes nothing happens and they just let you go. Sometimes they'll say, well, you promised to be here to care for patients, and therefore you're not there to take care of those patients, and then therefore you can be held liable for any lost revenue that they may estimate um, that they would get from your employment from the time of your proposed start date until the time that they're able to hire a new person. And this can be substantial. Now, many times in trauma, this may not be an issue because those patients tend to come, but certainly for positions that have a component of elective surgery, um, this is very important. And it's really important for those who are doing things that are based highly on um, elective patients or uh, insurance or, or private full pay patients. The other thing is you can not only be held liable for the lost revenue to the institution um, from lost patients and the revenue they would generate, you can also be held liable for the cost to recruit a new provider. And this can include the cost of that individual's recruitment, relocation, and then again, lost wages. Next slide. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about some things that you may commonly see and what they mean within an offer letter or a contract. So a restrictive covenant is really quite common, um, and what it states is that if you leave, on, uh, leave the employer, that you cannot work uh, for any other type of healthcare environment uh, within a certain distance for a certain amount of time. Now, multiple courts of law in, in various states it's been held up that 30 miles for three years has been judged reasonable. So you can use that as kind of a, an ideal. So if they hold you to 60 miles for one year, you may judge that as adequate. Um, or if they judge it for 100 miles for five years, you may be able to argue and negotiate that that's not the norm. But 30 miles for three years has been held up uh, in multiple courts of law. If you do break it, you can be sued. So you can be sued for lost wages and lost revenue to the, your previous employer. They can also have an injunction by which they come to you, they, the 
previous employer goes and legally gets a court order that states that you must stop providing the care that you are. Or, in addition to an injunction, you may also then have to pay damages to the place for which you had broke the contract or broke the restrictive covenant. Now, there are ways around this, and people commonly find a way around this. So it's very, very common for a restrictive covenant to be in a contract, but if it's just mutually not working out, um, it is very often that people will buy out the restrictive covenant. Now, it would be important to clarify whether your new employer is going to buy out the covenant or whether you'd be expected to provide the funds to buy out the covenant. And this can range from a substantial amount of money if you were a big income producer or perhaps not that much money at all, or they may just release you from the restrictive covenant. But it is something that legally you should be aware of. Next slide. A no solicitation provision really comes into effect when you're more established in your career. Um, and what this means is that if you leave, um, you cannot take uh, employ other employees from that location someplace else. You can't recruit away uh, other employees, your support staff. You definitely cannot recruit away the previous patients, but you also can't take away any of the technology. So that becomes important if you're involved in things that might be patented um, or intellectual uh, property because those things may actually belong to your previous employer. So, again, this really comes in play more for those who perhaps have been in a situation or an institution for a long period of time or are mid-career perhaps have a lot of patients or loyal employee or staff or have developed entire units where perhaps the thought may be, well, I'll be able to recruit away the entire, you know, trauma division, et cetera. Next slide. A non-compete clause. So this is similar to uh, the re restrictive covenant, except this says not only will you, uh, will you not work in that area, but you won't work or consult with other people. So this can restrict you not only physically where you're working, um, but also, again, intellectual property and extend all the way to a consulting company. So what you're saying is it's not just within the certain radius or certain time, this is saying that you're not going to work for a company that directly competes against this particular company. Next slide. So shifting gears now a little bit more, it's going to be important to understand are you an employed person versus an independent contractor? And this becomes more important in centers that are not at the classic academic centers. So certainly employed is becoming more and more uh, common, but independent contractors are another way that people think that they're employed, but they're not. So very important to ensure that you understand the difference between this language. If you are an independent contractor, what that states is that you are, you are saying that you will provide a service to care for those patients for a certain amount of money. That amount of money is going to be what that institution will give to you. Now, from that lump sum amount of money, you have to take care of your malpractice, retirement, expenses, and do your own tax withholding. So those salaries may look very, very, um, uh, very generous and very, very large, but you have to take into effect that you are responsible for taking care of all these other aspects. If you are employed, 
then as employed, those issues will be taken care of by your employer. So they pay your malpractice. There's usually a retirement plan. Um, they cover the costs and expenses of the office, and they will do the tax withholding. So very, very different uh, scenarios that can have large implications, uh, but oftentimes a source of confusion when people see different uh, advertisements for um, substantial amounts of money. Next slide. Malpractice coverage. This is probably one of the most important things to understand when you're taking a new job, uh, but probably one of the things that gets least talked about to fellows as they graduate. There is a very large difference, and you should be sure to understand which one that your new employer is offering. If the malpractice coverage is, is by what they call occurrence, that means this will cover any event that occurred while you were employed, no matter when the claim is made. So for example, you've worked someplace for five years, you move on to another job, you're five years out, and now someone files a claim. If you have occurrence insurance, the, the malpractice at that initial institution covers that claim. Claims made means that they will cover all claims that are actually filed within the legal system made during that time of employment. So if you have a case in the last week you worked there and the claim gets filed two years later, that claim is not covered. In these situations, you'll need to be sure that when you leave that you have a what they call tail coverage. Tail coverage covers all those cases that may come to fruition between the time of employment and then what gets filed as a claim later. This can be very, very expensive, and you need to be sure that you find out who's really going to pay for this. Is this you? Will it be covered by your old employer, or will this be picked up by your new employer? But you want to ensure if you have a claims-made policy that if you're leaving that there is, you have documented that you have tail coverage. This is particularly a big deal if you work with kids or pregnant women, because as you know, um, you could file claims for any issues with children until they're age 18, and pregnant women often until the child at that time is up to 21. Next slide. Vacation time is important to all of us. So sometimes there will be distinct uh, ways in which you garner vacation time versus sick time. Sometimes you just get personal PDO time, personal time off. So you want to clarify how does vacation time accrue, is there a rate, and is there a cap? And if so, if you reach that cap, can you cash out and buy out what the value of that time was, or do you just lose it? So certainly we want people to take vacations, but we all know that sometimes uh, you can't within a certain amount of time, and if there's a cap on things, um, if you don't use it and you just lose it, then that may be difficult. Uh, coverage, particularly for those that are going to settings that may be more remote, um, it, it's important to clarify how will coverage be dealt with. So it is not uncommon at all that, yes, you can accrue and take vacation time, but when you leave, you may be responsible for providing uh, the appropriate coverage. This may mean that you actually have to locate and vet and employ and find the coverage, um, and it may mean that you have to pay for them. So clarifying with the person and the employer uh, particularly in these rural settings where there may not be depth of providers, 
Um, are you going to have to find the coverage, and if you're going through a locums group, are you having to pay the locums, or will that be done by the institution? <coughs> oh, next slide. <coughs> sick time. At times, sick time is seen different and distinct from vacation time, and it can accrue, and oftentimes it will not cap, whereas in many places, vacation time will cap. However, in some places, maternity and paternity leave cannot be counted as sick time, and during those periods of time, you would have to use your accumulated uh, vacation time uh, to take this time off. So, important to clarify, is it all lumped over personal time off, or is there a differentiation between um, sick and vacation time? Additionally, if it's a prolonged illness or catastrophic illness, um, are you at a risk for a salary cut if you cannot return to work in that year? Or would that just occur potentially if you can't return to work at all? Are you at risk potentially for a job loss? And some places will even require that uh, you have to make up the RVUs that you were targeted to have uh, estimated to bring in during the time that you were out. So those things are unusual and usually don't happen. But it is important to understand if sick time is lumped together with vacation time. Next slide. Disability insurance will be offered by many of the employers. As you look at the disability insurance, sit down and figure out uh, with the benefits person exactly what is the coverage. If you are injured or ill, when does, it, when does the disability insurance kick in? For example, do you have to be out of work for a minimum of six weeks before any of the insurance kicks in? Who's paying for it? Is this something that you will pay for out of pre-tax money, or will this be paid for by the institution? And then how do you define disabled? So, for example, if you can no longer do your job, but you can still be a physician, will the policy kick into place? So if you are a surgeon, and you lose, you know, your arms but could still be a radiologist, some disability insurance will say, well, you're still able to be a physician, therefore disability insurance doesn't count. Um, some, however, will say, okay, there's a discrepancy between your, between your previous profession and the profession you now have, and they will make up the difference in salary. So very, very different opportunities with disability insurance. Next slide. CME. Again, at many of the larger uh, uh, employed and academic centers, CME will be uh, allotted. You'll have a certain amount of time or oftentimes even more uh, commonly you'll have a certain amount of money. Sometimes CME is all you get. You have to pay for your dues, license, DEA, et cetera, out of that money. Sometimes it's actually separate money set aside to pay for uh, actually going to a meeting. So if the amount is substantial, then that may not be as problematic. However, if the amount is restricted, for example, you only get $1,500 uh, per year, which essentially would pay for one meeting, it would be important to know if you're also responsible to pay for your dues and subscriptions and license out of that money too. Uh, it's also important to know how you are going to be able to utilize the time. Because if you, particularly an employed for-profit hospital or smaller remote hospitals, it is not uncommon that you have to utilize vacation time 
to be able to go to the meetings. So that's important for you to, to recognize and to have clear in your mind. Next slide. Sign out and bonuses and startup stipends are very, very popular and they can look very, very attractive. Um, things to know about are how much money and over what period of time and then what is the length of commitment. So for many places they will offer relocation bonuses, they will offer a sign-on bonus um, with the caveat that you commit to at least you know, one or three years depending on uh, the, the job and the location, sometimes up to five. More than that would probably be considered excessive. If you break that, sometimes you'll need to pay that back, but sometimes you have to pay that back not only the actual money, but also with interest. In some for-profit situations and, and systems, that sign-on bonus is also linked to a target um, uh, productivity, and that productivity may be calculated by RVUs, or it may be calculated based on charges, or it may be calculated based on receipts. These are things that you may have various amounts of control over or none, lack of control over. For example, if you're working in a poor uh, area based primarily on uninsured people, if they're calculating shortfalls based on your receipts, then you're likely going to owe your employer money. However, it's based on RVUs or charges that it may work out just fine. So it's important to know um, do, do they have productivity targets that are linked to these bonuses or these sign-up start stipends, uh, and if so, how they'll be handled. Next slide. Salary is also very highly variable. Um, traditionally, you know, at, at academic settings, it's based on the institution, where it's located, the competitiveness and, and, uh, of the institution, academic rank, and it tended to increase based on rank, grants, um, elevation and position, uh, or have other contributions based on medical directorship. Now more and more places, even in academic centers, are linked to productivity benchmarks. Clearly the productivity benchmarks really focus on clinical acumen and not just, uh, and don't really take into account any of the scholarly work or activity. and can be a shortcoming of some of these uh, benchmarkings. There are two different systems that are generally used. There's the MGMA. The strength of the MGMA is that it has very specific data on salaries based not only on region of the country, but also in subspecialty areas. So for example, you can look at the MGMA and look at region of the country and find trauma surgeon, and you'll be able to get an idea of, of what the ballpark um, 25th percentile, 50th percentile, 75th percentile salary ranges are in your area. Versus the AAMC, which is uh, historically uh, with the academic centers, and it takes into effect rank. So it will link at, list out assistant professor, associate, full professor, division chief, and chair, um, which the MGMA does not take into consideration. Um, so there are strengths and benefits of both. The MGMA overall tends to be a bit higher, but just so people understand, the 25th percentile, the MGMA, usually equates to the 50th percentile, the AAMC, almost spot for spot. Now, it becomes a little different when it comes to chairman and division chiefs. So there are strengths of both, 
Um, the other downside of the AAMC is that it's much more broad. So finding things such as trauma surgery, um, you, it will all be lumped under general surgery, uh, which may not have a, a, its particular advantage in your particular section of the country. So with that, it's important to understand, do you have to maintain uh, the minimum RVU target to maintain your salary, or are you at risk for a salary cut, or is this only used as a gauge uh, to ensure appropriate productivity, uh, but there no, are not any financial penalties if you do not make it? There are things, uh, withholds versus bonuses. What this tells you is that um, for many places, they've budgeted a certain amount of money that they expect that they're going to pay you. With a withhold, they'll hold 10% of that salary, and then if you make your RVU target, then you get that 10%. With uh, some of the bonuses, unless it's a, a more in-depth, evolved incentive plan, but a, a classic bonus, it's essentially the same thing. They just pay you a lower base, but then that money that they've allotted would then be given to you as a bonus. So these can be essentially the same thing, it just sounds a lot better if you call it a bonus as opposed to a, a withhold. Next slide. As you sit down and you look at your salary, particularly if you're going to be at a place where uh, you're going to be involved in education or scholarly activity and research, it's important to understand how your time is being allotted and how that's going to be linked and attributed to your salary. So if you are a full FTE, full-time employee, then you're assigned, if you are assigned a 0.8 clinical, that means that your productivity RVU target is also going to be 0.8. So when you look at the benchmarking and you see the 50th percentile, you would take 0.8% of that. Your base salary will also be at that 0.8 of that median salary. So don't go in if you're a 0.8 clinical FTE and expect that the salary is going to be the full amount of what a 1.0 full FTE clinical would be. So again, there's differences between the MGMA um, benchmarking as well as the AAMC. The MGMA will not take into account uh, academic rank. So this is usually part of your salary. Sometimes the entire salary is linked to uh, target RVUs. And even though they say they're going to give you clinical or academic uh, protected academic time or protected research time, if the entire salary is linked to clinical RVUs, then you can tell that what the institution is valuing is going to be clinical RVUs, and that time may not be as protected as you think. Next slide. Then you need to ask about how your other time is going to be treated. For example, are you guaranteed research time, or do you want guaranteed research time? But if you are, do you have to have grants to offset your salary requirements? This is important to understand because if you don't get those grants, that are, how are you going to deal with that second uh, part of your salary? Will that just be a loss to you, or do you, if you get the time, are you going to have to pay that back to the institution? Many of us say we value education, but at the same time, how is this recognized and rewarded? So will scholarly activity and teaching medical students, giving lectures, is there any way that this is valued either in an incentive plan or in uh, allotted time for this? So, And can you get bonuses for excellence in that area? 
It's also very common that there will be a certain amount of allotment um, directed toward different leadership positions. So, for example, a hospital may buy out 0.1 or 0.2 of your FTE for you to serve as trauma medical director or ICU director. And in those cases, the hospital will then send funds over to the department um, to offset that cost of your salary so that you can have the RVU reduction. And that's also important because many people wish to stay involved in uh, national and professional committees, but how are these other missions evaluated? Is it expected that you, know, you do all these other uh, activities outside of your standard clinical working time? Um, and are these, when you go to these meetings, are these considered vacation time, or are these uh, treated as though you're representing your institution and therefore also treated as part of your uh, full FTE working time. This can be very important and can also then really give you a flavor for how that institution uh, values truly the academic mission um, or if they do so at all. So, next slide. Bonuses incentives are becoming more and more uh, popular and they're certainly based on different eligibility. In some places if you don't make your uh, clinical target, you won't be eligible for any type of bonus. In other places, if you don't make your clinical target as well as your academic target, you're not eligible for any of the bonuses. Some, they'll link it to that mission. So if you make your clinical target, you can get the clinical bonus, or if you make your academic target, you can get your academic bonus, but you have to meet both targets to get both bonuses. They can be highly variable. Sometimes, uh, some institutions will only pay any bonuses if the entire institution is profitable. And this means that rheumatology, peds, all the other areas would also have to be profitable for anyone to get a bonus. Sometimes they'll pay it out if your department is profitable. Um, and sometimes you'll get paid even if the, the institution is losing money, but if you're exceeding your targets. So not so much that that has to be in your contract, but it's important to understand how that's going to work before you get disappointed about uh, uh, whether or not you're going to get bonuses or not. Some will just be a flat rate. Some will be weighted based on key areas, i.e. clinical productivity versus journals versus serving on uh, national committees. And very commonly now with uh, clinical bonus plans, you will see what's called a step-up method, by which when you reach your clinical target, and the first 10% above that clinical target will re be reimbursed at a certain amount. The next 10% above that would be, would be valued a different amount. So, for example, if you meet your clinical target, the first 10% may be valued at $5 per RVU. The next 10% may be valued at $8 per RVU. And if you get into the higher end RVU generation, you may get up to $15 per RVU on top of what your base salary was. Next slide. Retirement is something that I would encourage you all to think about very, very early, like as soon as you actually start college, but many of you are all have already all exceeded this. So at least now as you're getting out of fellowships or you're early in your career, think about your retirement. Pension plans are now very, very rare. But if you have a place or you go to a place and they tell you they have a pension plan, that is spectacular. <coughs> More commonly, are retirement funds. So retirement funds will allow a, a 
particular contribution by the employer, usually either matched or sometimes mandatory matching um, by your employer. So, for example, if you if you donate three percent of your salary toward your retirement, then your employer will match three percent. The most common formulation of this is a six and six percent. So you contribute six percent of your salary, they match six percent of that salary. Um, you can contribute twelve percent of your salary, they will still only contribute six percent. So that's one of the more common forms. The pensions are where they contribute to a retirement plan, but you don't have to contribute anything at all. Um, and that money just accumulates and the employer just fully funds your retirement plan. And again, those are becoming exceedingly rare. Next slide. So in summary, that's a whirlwind overview about uh, things that are important when you're negotiating and thinking about contracts and some important legalities um, about understanding um, the ins and outs and some of the language that you may not have been exposed to. It is complex and it is binding, um, and you really get one shot. You want to be sure that you're diligent about asking your questions and getting the answer, but don't be get to the point that you're completely paranoid about it. But arm yourself and, and get some questions ahead of time so when you talk to the administrator or the benefits people, you can ask educated questions and get these things clarified. Know the standards and benchmarks they're going to use to assess you. One of the worst things is to have misconceived uh, notions of what you're going to be paid or what the productivity expectation is going to be. Uh, you really have to know yourself. What are you going to bring to the table? and how much trust do you have uh, in this employer, um, and just understand that there is a lot of variability. And it's okay to get help. There are certainly employment lawyers that will be more than happy to uh, uh, look over something for you. Um, I would advise that maybe don't say to your prospective employer, hey, I'm going to go run this by a lawyer, um, but it certainly is reasonable to take it to someone to look at it. You can also take it to one of your faculty members. Just understand that depending on the situation that you're going into, um, what may be important in your situation may be very different. For example, a, coming to me in an academic center, I may not have the perspective to be able to answer all the questions if you're going to a, a large inner-city group practice that's with a for-profit healthcare organization. So in those areas, it's important to identify somebody who's been in similar situations who can evaluate the contract, or again, feel free to get some legal help to help you clarify the questions. I really appreciate the opportunity for me to be able to share uh, some of the things that I've learned about contracts and, and employment, um, and happy to answer any questions. Well, Dr. Wilson, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to do this for us. It's obviously a huge topic and um, an excellent overview. As you mentioned yourself, um, there's a lot of detailed questions in individual situations, and uh, you talked about going to, uh, to a trustworthy faculty or uh, an employment lawyer. Did you find any other resources um, that are useful on the Internet or books or anything, or is the best advice really to say if somebody has more specific questions, get a lawyer, get somebody that's an expert in that? Yeah, so the problem with some of the books, um, there are some great books out there. I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. But the the legalities 
are going to vary from state to state. So what may apply in one state as far as restrictive covenants and some of these that may not apply in other areas. Um, I do think it's important to have a good mentor who can who can look it over and just tell you whether or not it looks like it's a fair shake or not. Um, but I do think you could take it to your department administrator. Um, and many times for those of you coming out of fellowship, you may not know the department administrator very well, but uh, uh, they're a great source of knowledge because they're designing these all the time. And they can help you look at these. So that's another source that is usually uh, underutilized but free and available to you when you're at, in your fellowship things. The other thing that people don't think about is um, you, can, you can reach out to the School of Medicine's legal group, and many times they'll look it over for free and just give you an overall gestalt. Not help you so much with the negotiation, but tell you if they think that the contract is within realm of uh, what would be standard in your area. Um, so those are two other sources that I think can give you some additional perspectives. That, that's excellent. Thank you. And those are probably resources that we don't think about uh, right away, so that's very good. And I have one more question, um, if you can maybe briefly touch on, if we're not looking at the first contract, but maybe at the second contract, just kind of an overview. Um, if you're in employment now, or you're young faculty, you've been there for one, two, three years, is there any ideal time frame when you can start to not renegotiate your contract, but what if I would like to have more salary, more research time, what is the best situation to do this or the earliest time that one should look into that? So the so many employment contracts are renewed annually, um, so you have an opportunity to discuss some things or if you felt as though you didn't have things, uh, weren't as clear or weren't, uh, uh, but annually would be a, an opportunity to be able to do that. However, your best negotiating power is when you're getting ready to or you've just achieved um, your next rank. So. Oftentimes, P&T goes up and it takes effect the next year, but you know if you qualify as that next rank, usually in the wintertime. Um, therefore, then as you go to negotiate your contract for that next academic year, that would be a position of strength because clearly you're now going up the ladder. Um, those things will be uh, an opportunity and give you a uh, important thing. You need to reevaluate your time and the contract and offer letters uh, should be changing as you are developing and taking on more responsibilities. So, for example, if you now become trauma director, um, that would be important to uh, evaluate how that's going to affect your clinical FTE. And it may not require redoing the contract then, but you may want to ensure that it's in your contract for the following academic year. Excellent. Thank you. On behalf of the East Career Development Committee, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Wilson, for taking the time to speak with us today. I am Stefan Leist, and I hope you enjoyed the program. Please visit the East website at east.org for more East Career podcasts and other valuable information.